Welcome to Beyond Politics. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the Senate. There was a famous, though maybe fictional, story where George Washington was sitting down with Thomas Jefferson, and they were arguing about drinking coffee. Suddenly, Washington asked Jefferson, why did you pour that coffee into your saucer? And Jefferson replied, to cool it. That's the same way that we pour legislation into the Senate saucer to cool it. And that story has become, again, maybe apocryphal, but really meaningful in Washington. For years, people have thought of the U.S. Senate as the place where things go to slow down, to be thought through, to be considered more deeply. Except in recent years, the Senate has been not so much a cooling saucer as a deep freezer. All legislative roads lead there, and usually it's to a dead end. When presidents take executive action, which we saw President Obama and President Trump do more than any of their predecessors, it's usually because they need to work around the Senate. It's the site of national catharsis over judges. And when something actually does get passed, it's major news. But now, in the Biden presidency, things may be changing. The 50-50 tie in the Senate, with Democrats holding the tiebreaker because they hold the vice presidency, has opened up the path of special rules called reconciliation. And Democrats have used them to pass things like the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion plan on top of the $4 trillion in COVID relief that the Senate managed to pass in 2020. Democrats are holding out the possibility of passing yet more meaningful, significant, society-shaping legislation through reconciliation, while also flirting with the possibility of striking deals with a group of 10 Republican senators and making actually bipartisan bills, and also at the same time navigating the highly complex politics of centrist senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who have said that they're really not fully on board with all the Democratic agenda. It has never been more valuable, more crucial to understand the dynamic of the Senate, the people, the rules, the policies, and the politics. And that's why I invited back one of the country's absolute top-notch experts on the Senate. Ryan McConaughey, who's now at the firm Forbes Tate doing communications and public affairs, where he's a trusted advisor to organizations around the country, was a senior advisor to the Senate Democratic leader, Charles Schumer. He helped to shape Democrats' policy, strategy, and how they leverage the rules and the mechanisms of the U.S. Senate to shape everything that the U.S. Senate does. There is no more consummate insider on the U.S. Senate than Ryan McConaughey. Ryan, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Great to be back. Always great to talk to you. And uh, I'll try to live up to that lofty intro. It is lofty. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that I wasn't injecting a little bit of highfalutin drama because <laughs> this is radio. It is podcasting. But I think everything I just said is true. The the U.S. Senate is really the epicenter of all of the function and all of the dysfunction in American politics right now. So let's just start out at a super high level. Does the U.S. Senate work anymore? Is it, is it still a functional legislative body 
doing what it's intended to do under the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, I, I, it does. I think you mentioned passing the American Rescue Plan, and there's progress going on. I think you led with the old chestnut about the cooling saucer. The Senate has never been designed to move at breakneck speed, which is at times frustrating. You could certainly argue that it can be more functional than it has been in recent years. But there's a lot happening, and there are a lot of variables uh, at play. So I think if you really want to step back, definitely there's a, a sense in Washington and in Congress and in the Senate that with the Biden administration, there is a much more, much more of a return to normalcy, just the tenor, the demeanor, the we're, we're kind of back to regular programming after four years of being on a very, very chaotic reality show. And that does matter. But I think what it's also revealing or reminding people of is that yes, we've returned to a sense of normalcy. But gridlock in the Senate is also normal. And you have a lot of competing factors, most of them external, some of them internal, that are driving the decision-making for each caucus. So you have the Democrats with a razor-thin majority. And I think sometimes people assume, well, they, they'll hold all 50. But as you laid out, getting getting 50 Democrats together in unison is, I mean, look, something that, that Leader Schumer's done a great job on so far, but it's going to be a challenge every, every time. And so I think there is an impulse among moderates uh, and among Democrats to go for a deal. But the tension there is, particularly after having seen what's happened in the last four years and with a, with a resurgent strong left, how far are you going to go to compromise on a deal? And if there's an appetite to do a 60-40 deal, what does 60 look like? And, and, and also, trust is at a place where Democrats don't want to feel like they're loosely holding the football and, and spend six months negotiating just to have moderate Republicans end up finding a reason to say no and be left with nothing. So the impulse is there to go to the middle. But when you've got reconciliation in your back pocket and you're not sure that you can get a 60-40 deal, that's, that's what's happening on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, Republicans like accomplishments. I mean, you saw a bunch of Republicans touting things that were in ARP even when they voted against it. And that, that goes back to the Recovery Act when we were in Congress. And so, so although the, the Republicans like accomplishments, there are things coming up that Republicans want to do deals on. But when you're in the minority, you don't have an incentive to give up accomplishments. And you looking at and what a 60-40 deal looks like to a Republican probably is not probably feels like a 50-50 or a 40-60 deal to Democrats. And so when each side essentially has a veto option in their back pocket or a bypass option, the odds, the odds of getting together are low. But there are some green shoots of hope. One of the things that is going to be coming up, Schumer and Young have this endless frontier act that is a bipartisan bill that's meant to up our scientific research and uh, our commercial protections to, to sort of get, stay out in front of the economic race with China. Senator Carper and Senator Capito are working hard on a transportation bill. So not everything can be done through reconciliation. And there's also a real sense outside the building from stakeholders, the business community. There's a desire for durability and predictability, not unsurprising after the past four years, but there's a sense that what makes something durable is having members of both parties be on board with it. So when you're looking at big policies, there is a desire, even if a reconciliation bill passes and that's gonna be partisan, can some of the policies in there like a climate policy get some Republican support individually? Uh, because if you look at the tax bill, I mean, parts of that are gonna get rolled back from 2017 most likely. And there's a feeling that one, one, party, one party policies are more temporary. So there are, there are some, right now I'd say the, the equilibrium favors partisanship, but there is some hope that maybe they can get together on some things. The last time I had you as a guest on this show, and I really want to commend that episode. It was in December. You can check it out in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. Again, wherever you get your podcasts. You, you, for, for one thing, we asked you to preview what was going to happen. 
And boy, your predictions were spot on. I'm not surprised about that, but it's, it's really uncanny to go back and, and listen to it now. But you also said something that was incredibly smart. And I almost want to go out and trademark it for you. I'm calling it the McConaughey rule, which is that outside politics drives inside politics. My question before was about whether the U.S. Senate can still work, but it's really per the McConaughey rule. It's really a broader question about whether American politics still work, because you pointed out that no senators are going to be able individually or as a group to fix what ails the Senate, while the politics that drives their behavior on the outside is still so messed up. People respond to incentives. And you were referring to incentives a, mo a moment ago and saying the political incentives are pretty mixed, especially for the Republicans in this razor thin minority. General political best practices don't hand accomplishments to an administration, don't hand accomplishments to a majority. Voters are not rewarding elected representatives for accomplishing bipartisan things. They're rewarding their politicians for being extreme. And so the incentives are just working against getting things done in Washington. Incredibly important insight. So my question for you is, do you see those incentives from the outside getting any better over in the six months since we talked? This was obviously before the Capitol insurrection before the 300 odd bills that Republicans at the state house level have introduced to affect how we vote in America. Are the political incentives in any way stacking up to give both parties incentives to want to work together and make things functional in the Senate? Yeah. So I think, look, I, I don't want to be a, uh, a, a, a wild-eyed optimist here. I think fundamentally the dynamics are still are, are very hard to overcome to get to get some deals done. And so you start off with what has to be done. Like I think the government will be funded this year. I think the debt limit will be increased. There typically is a defense bill. And then you 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 work up from there to to where look, I think you've seen some interesting shift in the business community. There's been a little bit of coverage about how the business community is becoming dem curious. It's is I think a way to to phrase it, and I don't think you're going to see a wholesale flip in the business community where they go from the BRT and the chamber go from being very closely aligned with Republicans to being closely aligned with Democrats. But again, they want certainty, they want deals, and I think that the the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, who are a faction of the Republican Party, give them a little bit of pause and a little bit of heartburn. And so, so I think they're they're willing to because because there is an effort to. One, just deal with the majority. You have to deal with the majority. Democrats are in the majority. But also, two, really kind of get to the middle. I, I think there are some powerful constituencies that will be, be pushing together. Whether they can overcome those two hurdles I mentioned of being in the minority and not wanting to, to, to overextend for accomplishments or not wanting to, from the Democratic perspective, give away the store at what, particularly from the left, is pushing like this is a historic moment. There's a, a, a bold visionary. We need, 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 need big action. And even... Even if, look, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. I believe in incrementalism. So I believe in, I don't, I don't think singles and doubles are necessarily bad words, but, but there's a diversity of opinion in the Democratic caucus on that. And so I think, I, I think, look, I think there will be some areas, I think. And it's also, I, I think when you talk about the summer ahead and the American jobs plan, I think it's worth noting that the American jobs plan and build back better, the, the Biden proposals, they don't necessarily translate into, like the American Jobs Plan is not necessarily gonna translate one-to-one -one into the American Jobs Act. Like there is 
a portion in there about protecting the American supply chain and about and that that's part of the China bill that may be a bipartisan thing. There's really what what the administration has laid out is what it wants done, and then the the mixing and matching of the various puzzle pieces is going to depend on vote math and what's bipartisan versus what has to be partisan. So there's a lot of a lot of different calculus going on. So I, I think. Long road to me coming back to your question and saying, I think fundamentally the situation is the same. Incrementally, it's better. And so there's a hope on a, on a couple things, but but I, I don't see a kumbaya circle or I, I don't see a drum circle breaking out anytime soon. Look, I want to get back to the American Jobs Plan and the infrastructure bill and where we're going on that, because that's the major thing that I brought you on to talk about. But I I, I do want to just pick up on one thing you said there. Again, following the the the, the rule, the, the McConaughey rule, we're going to trademark this. I do think it's really fascinating what you just brought up, the role of corporate America. There's been a lot of focus on this, obviously, recently with corporate actions following the Georgia voting law, Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game out. And there's been a fair amount of discussion about what you just said, that corporations, yes, they want lower corporate tax rates, but what they really want is some societal harmony. They don't want their workforce angry and divided and embittered. They don't want their customers feeling that way. They want a cohesive and dependable and reliable political structure so that they can plan and invest in a coherent way. And all the political forces that are pulling us apart are not good for business. And they've been very loud in, in expressing that. The dot I want to connect here that I find really interesting is there was a news item in the last couple of days that the grassroots fundraising tool that Republicans have built to compete with Democrats' online fundraising engine, Act Blue, has begun to close the gap with Democrats. And you're seeing more grassroots fundraising from both sides, but increasingly from Republicans catching up. It's so interesting to me that so much of the focus around the For the People Act and in, in voting reform is on the Democratic side, let's get corporate money out. Let's get the voice of corporations out of the political process. I really wonder if that's such a wise thing. I think Democrats should really hit pause and think hard about that because what you're saying is something that, and, and look, you, you, have, you have your fingers on the pulse of all this. You're hearing from the business community and you're talking to former colleagues under the dome. The business community is increasingly becoming a voice of moderation, bipartisanship, reasonableness. Grassroots forces are the ones creating the incentives for politicians to be more extreme. I just wonder if Democrats have really thought through adequately where they want the money coming from in our politics. I, feel free to jump in on that because I know I'm taking us off on a tangent, but it's just, it's an interesting thing you're pointing out. Well, I think, I mean, I think just take a step back on the, the, the business piece in particular. I think businesses want to mitigate risk. They want predictability and they, and they, and they want serious economic threats addressed. So as that as that manifests itself, that's that's going to there are going to be some competing priorities there in terms of what it means for for tax rates and some qualms about raising the corporate tax rate too far too fast as we head into the recovery or individual tax rates. That's going to be a whole separate discussion, but we are we are still climbing out of the covid hole on the economy and that's going to be something that weighs on people's minds. But on something like climate, I mean, there's a there's a business case for dealing with climate and companies are are looking at the, the potential threats of extreme weather, decreased productivity, the need to dis possible disruption of global supply chains. They're saying like, we, 
we, for, for the health of our business to be to be good to our shareholders, to be to be good stewards of, of our work, like we need to be on board with getting this addressed. And so that's why you're seeing a lot more business activity around things like today. Today is Earth Day. The White House put out their their commitment to to go to net zero uh, emissions by 2050, economy wide. It's part of getting back into Paris. And you're seeing a lot of business support for that. And it's because it's not because businesses want to be in politics. It's because they look and they say, we've got we've got some serious thing. We're losing money every time we have to reroute a truck because the highways, you know, the highway's bad, or we're losing out because our 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 ports aren't processing enough. So infrastructure, climate, these are things where business is operating from a position of looking at government government you've got to you of wanting government to step in and solve major problems now how that how that relates back to the to the to the money in politics i mean that's uh, i'm on a little bit of a tangent there i mean i think the grassroots energy on both sides is really it's really something to behold i mean you you saw our, our former former colleague uh, jamie harrison i mean he he pulled in a ton of money for 57 million dollars in a quarter and I, there's there's always a, a push or pull about how much how much money pushes pushes the the individual directions of uh, of people, and I think that I, I think that, that I mean look there, it, it's just a factor of how how things go. But I I think in terms of in terms of closing the gap between Republicans and Democrats on grassroots, I'm not I'm not surprised. I mean look it's it tracks the the interest right. I mean we had the highest turnout presidential election in in years. I, I know that that you, you're both candidates with over 75 million votes. Like it, it's just, I think it's just a reflection of of these times. Well, all right, really great and brilliant tangent working off of the McConaughey rule. But let's get back to the issue, which is the Senate. And we are, as you noted, we're recording this on Earth Day. <clears throat> we're right in the thick of. We're expecting. At this moment, by the time people listen to this, this may be out. We're expecting the counterproposal from Senate Republicans to the Biden infrastructure plan, where this is all going to spool out over the next few weeks. So you are the one of the best Senate prognosticators in the business. You don't have any absolute certainty, but there are probably a few different ways that things could play out. Let's just look first at the infrastructure plan, the infrastructure bill. Maybe you could game out for us a little bit. What are the possible ways that this could work out in the coming weeks? Sure. So I think this, and this is where I may go into Senate Arcana, but I, I mentioned earlier, you can do some things through reconciliation. You can't do everything so reconcili- through reconciliation. So I think the areas where Republicans and Democrats have the most agreement are on what I'm going to call legacy infrastructure, because that's been one of the DC parlor games is sort of what is the definition of infrastructure between the two parties. But I think, look, like I said, Senators Carper and Capito are, are working hard on a transportation bill, what's you know commonly known as the highway bill. It's typically mass transit, rails, roads, increasingly intermodal transportation. And, and that's an area where Republicans and Democrats have traditionally been able to come together and do some things. The pieces of infrastructure that don't fit in the highway bill that are part of AJP, they probably move over to a reconciliation package. But look, like the, the AJP has a $5 billion rural rural infrastructure fund. There's a big investment in broadband there. I mean, these are things that you would at least hope can, can fit under the definition of bipartisan infrastructure. But again, I think there'll be the, there will be a desire to do as much as can be done in a bipartisan way. But Democrats, if they don't see a path forward in a bipartisan way, will be looking for what they can do in reconciliation. Do you, if you were to, if, if you had to make a bet, boy, betting is, is, is sort of a, a weird way to think about this, but if you had to make a bet, will there be a portion of the infrastructure bill in this, let's call it 
600 billion to $1 trillion range that passes on a truly bipartisan basis, meaning there are 60 votes, there are, there are 10 Republican senators to get on board. Would you say that that's more likely or more unlikely? Mm. Oh, you're, you're appealing, you're appealing to my, to, you, you're giving me an over under. Yeah. Uh, I, almost. Yeah. I want, I'm, I'm, I guess, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that the sun is out today. I'm going to say slightly more likely. I'm going to keep hope alive for a little bit. I think that there will be, there will be challenges. Members of both parties are sort of looking at the amount of money that's going out the door. And that includes moderates and Senator Manchin who will want some degree of even a traditional or legacy infrastructure package paid for, but everyone everyone likes moving people, goods, and business, you know, and, and services. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be optimistic today, and I'm gonna say more likely than less likely. Let's broaden it out a little bit more. Democrats and the Biden administration have a little bit of the gumball problem. There are so many gumballs trying to get out of the machine, and only a narrow slot, and. There is a real possibility that in the remaining, it's already, the clock has already started. What happens in politics is that you kind of think in two-year cycles. So you've got a limited amount of time before the 2022 midterms. This is the window where if Democrats have majorities in the House, Senate, and the presidency, they can theoretically move legislation. So many priorities, so little time. What are the prospects for unsticking the gumball machine and starting to move some of those things through. What do you think is likely to move in what order and how likely is it to ultimately be successful? So I think part of this, I, I, I think the, the administration has laid out its economic investment plan. So ARP was the recovery now we're looking forward with the investment. I think they're going to stay on an economic message. I think they're going to stay with economic priorities. And I, I think, look, you, if you look at what we're now approaching Biden's first 100 days, he's getting very, very high marks because he's, he's, he's doing the work on what I would dub the quote unquote wartime issues, which are the virus and the economy. And just being very straightforward about those things, very measured, very down the middle and delivering results. And I think they're going to stick in that lane as they, they move into the next phase here. Again, I think there's a there, there's not necessarily a, a set. We have to do these four pieces as one package. We have to do these four pieces. And also Biden is going to be coming out in the coming weeks with what he's going to call the American Families Plan, which is sort of the... Uh, to take the expansive definition, the human infrastructure of the country, and that's going to be the healthcare pieces. And we'll probably have some individual tax provisions that are sort of paired with that as the suggested pay fors. So I think realistically, I think this is, I think this is going to be the, there was the, the running joke under the Trump administration that every week was infrastructure week. I do think this is going to be infrastructure summer. I really do think that by the time we get get to August, you're going to see a real a real effort to to, to move big pieces of either either with a either through regular order and 60 votes or through reconciliation, uh, a lot of the a lot of the infrastructure and climate pieces. Now, one of the variables is, and this is where I am going to go down into uh, deep into the the well of the Senate. The uh, recently, you may have seen that uh, the parliamentarian gave advice that under a under a section of the Budget Act called Section 304 that the Senate can revise a previous budget resolution. And what this could do without getting really going into it is, is potentially unlock more reconciliation bills for the majority. All right, so, so just zooming out for a second, you have the normal way the Senate operates, yep. which is subject to the filibuster. Most people have heard of the filibuster, yep. which under the current Senate rules means you've got to have 60 votes essentially to pass something. But- there's a special rule called reconciliation, 
which applies to things that affect the budget. And we've already passed one thing, the, the American Rescue Plan, using re reconciliation. And what this official who works for the US Senate, who is sort of the guardian of the rules, <coughs> said is, actually, you can take more than one bite at the apple. You can go back and use reconciliation again and use it to pass more stuff, meaning you can, you don't, you, you, you can do more things via a simple majority. You don't have to overcome the filibuster on more things. Right. And that's, and there are still some open questions about exactly what that, what that initial advice means and how expansive it is. But if, if it could be the difference between over the course of the first two years of the Biden's presidency, Democrats having access to basically three majority only bills or potentially six, seven, eight. And, and that changes the math of the horse trading you have to do and the deal making and the mixing and matching of, of what's, what gets to 50 and how much, because if you only have two more reconciliation bills, obviously you have to try and fit much more into them. And that makes the calculus and the, and, and the trade-offs much harder. So that's that's why it's a little tough to say what order things are going to happen in, because we still don't, we, we essentially don't know how many how many cars are on the train. I'm going to keep infrastructure metaphors going here. But and, and there are also things that will come up that Senator Schumer has laid out that he that he wants to address this summer that are just not applicable. You can't do you can't do straight policy through reconciliation. There has to be a budget effect. So something like the Voting Rights Act that he that, that Leader Schumer has ID'd as a priority for, for consideration this summer. Obviously, sadly, gun safety is something that, that continues to be in the news and there's an appetite to address. That's not really reconciliation compatible. So it's not going to be only reconciliation, no matter what, because there are other pressing issues that that at least need to be attempted to address through through, through the 60 vote process. But again, when when Democrats don't see a path to an acceptable compromise, they're going to try and they're going to they're going to choose action and accomplishment. Right. The political theory being, I think, that you're gonna you're gonna have the same attacks. You're gonna have the same political fights either way. So get something done. And at least have that to run on because goodness knows you're going to be called socialist no matter what you do. Now, you do bring up an interesting, as we're talking about the, the political theories of all this, you bring up the fact that so far, the Biden administration has really been pretty laser focused on COVID and the economy, COVID and the economy. There have been charges, some with fair justification that not everything that they've proposed under the umbrella of COVID and the economy really belongs under there. But voters are getting the message. Voters are saying consistently in polling that they like what the Biden administration is doing. They like the focus on the economy. They even like all of the individual elements of the infrastructure plan. All of those elements get between 70% and 80% in polling from the American public, including majorities of Republicans. So these are, it's obviously both good policy and good politics to stick on the core, to stick on the basics. But as you alluded to, you don't get to control the world. You don't get to control the news. You don't get to control the future. And reality does keep impinging. For one thing, we've seen this massive influx of unaccompanied minors at the border. And that is the one issue where the Biden administration is currently underwater in polling. 
um, the American people are not happy with the situation there. They clearly want to see it addressed. We've also continued to see really horrifying incidents of police violence and shootings against African-American individuals. And the recent George Floyd verdict has again brought this whole issue to the fore. And as you alluded to, there have been continued mass shootings in America. At some point, do you think that the Biden administration is going to have to work with Senator Schumer and Senate Democrats to address some of these issues that they're going to have to move off of this COVID and the economy core? And if so, do you see any prospects for actual legislation getting through on these issues? Because as you say, you're probably leaving the realm of reconciliation. 50 votes isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to cut bipartisan deals. So are they going to have to go there? And if they go there, are they going to be successful? Yeah, so I think, right, by definition, you, you can't address, and it's not just external events. I mean, you have members of Congress who certainly you look at, at the rhetoric that led to January 6th and everything post-election and then all of the, the, the spate of voting bills at the state level. And there's a, there's a real desire to, on the Democratic side to pick up something like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the, as we, I think we discussed previously, sort of the For the People package. And then gun safety will continue to be an issue. The Senate is currently working on a uh, bill dealing with the, the recent increase in AAPI hate crime and, and, and COVID-related hate crime. The Equality Act is out there. Senator Schumer has announced that he's working with Senator Booker and Senator Wyden on, on soon-to-be-introduced cannabis decriminalization and legalization. And the House has passed the Moore Act on that. And, and there's the potential for Republican support there on, on these things. And, but again, assuming full Democratic support, which you can't always assume on these. So, I mean, those are some of the things that are that are out there. And look, I think I, I think on, on something like immigration, we're not in the same place that we were in 2013. But when I was in the Senate in 2013, the Senate produced 68 votes for a bipartisan immigration bill that had border security and path to legalization and family visa reforms. And, and really, and you've had, you've had now Speaker Boehner sort of say on his, his book tour that, oh, I, I really maybe should have brought that up in the House. And, and so, so yeah, I think, look, it's, it's an issue where I think Democrats are going to need to be cognizant of, of where the country is on immigration specifically. And I think that, that 2013, we, again, we're not as a country where we were then, but I think that's a good place to start. That bill that has that, that needs acknowledges the need for border security, but also for practical, humane measures that are good for the economy and good for, good for good for people who have been here, been contributing, and are part of their communities. And so you have you have all of those issues where again, like after Sandy Hook, the Mansion Toomey background check bill came close but didn't get there. And it's sixty is always tough to see, but but hopefully maybe on on a couple of those things there there'll be some some progress. I alluded at the top of the show to the fact that after your long career as a, a key staffer in the U.S. Senate, you have gone on to advise some of the biggest organizations in America. And as a trusted advisor, they, they actually pay you for your advice. And now I'm going to ask you to give away that advice for free on the radio. So I, I apologize to you, but I really do want to ask you about a matter of strategy. There's sort of two schools of thought when it comes to legislating. One is that you really get a limited number of shots at things. And once something is dealt with on the agenda, on a topic, the mindset becomes 
we just did that. We just dealt with that. We really need a cooling off period before we address it again. And so if you only get one shot, you really want to get everything you want done on that topic because you don't know when you're going to revisit it again. The other school of thought is, no, success begets success. You want to build momentum. You want to build a, a, a track record. So for example, there's the 1957 civil rights legislation that Lyndon Johnson muscled through the Senate and was in itself seen as largely toothless and inconsequential, but is widely credited with paving the way and creating momentum seven years later for the far more expansive Civil Rights Act of 1964. So Senate Democrats now find themselves in a position where you're seeing little nibbles on these issues we were just talking about that are so divisive of maybe there's a bipartisan deal to be had that would be far less than what Democrats would ideally like to do. There was reporting that there may be prospects for a deal on policing reform between Senator Tim Scott and Democratic senators who are looking at the liability shield that police officers and police departments enjoy. You were referring to the possibility of cannabis legislation. There is the possibility on Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes legislation, and maybe Republicans are going to get on board on that. So here's the part where I ask you to give away your incredibly valuable advice for free. Which path would you advise Senate Democrats to take? Should they be holding out for their limited number of shots while they hold this trifecta of majorities in the House, Senate, and, and, and the presidency to get exactly what they want done? Or are they better served to try and find these little small areas of progress and maybe get a virtuous cycle going of bipartisanship that can lead to more success across the board? So I, I, I like like I said I'm a, I'm by nature and, and look this is not a, this is not a, a simple A or B question because again sort of see, but by nature I'm a I'm a sixty forty person I tend to believe that you lock in gains and keep going where you can but it's it, it, it every every iteration and every every bill is a, is a different calculation but I I think the I think the notion particularly and this sort of goes back to whether something is done with a big bipartisan majority or a narrow partisan majority. I think what you're saying about policies being left alone, if 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 there's a major policy change and it's an 80-20 policy change, that probably sits for a while. But I mean, look, it's we we're we're now how many years into the Affordable Care Act and it is it is largely enshrined and is largely moving forward. But as recently as three years ago, there was an attempt to go at that and and healthcare is sort of an ever-evolving issue. So I, I think I, I believe in not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good generally. So I, I think, I think, and, and look, I think there's also, these are, these are real, there, there are real implications for, for, for people and helping, helping some people now versus helping more people later is, is always, is always a key trade-off, but I, I think these, these decisions matter. So, so I, I, I always, I, I tend to, to lean towards progress. I'll admit that my question of sort of incrementalism and, and getting a virtuous cycle going versus going for broke on, on everything you want was a little bit of a setup for the one, maybe the biggest issues facing Congress in the world, which is climate. You alluded to the fact that we're recording this on Earth Day 
and the Biden administration has come out with a target for carbon abatement over the next 10 or 15 years. But in a larger sense, there is a lot of reporting going on around the fact that the Biden administration has brought in an all-star team to focus on climate. They've brought former Senator, former Secretary of State Kerry in to be the czar on climate. Every agency has brought in climate specialists to, to focus on this. So all the conditions are there, but the rubber is going to meet the road in the Senate. So what are the prospects for legislative action on climate? Are there realistic prospects? Are they going to be able to get a big package done? Or is this going to be a case of a lot of smaller incremental steps spread throughout the agencies and perhaps sprinkled into legislation here and there? Sure. So yeah, and this was, I will, I will claim credit for this from the December interview where I talked about the all of government climate strategy that was coming because that's I think that's that's been borne out and you have Janet Yellen has a has a climate task force uh, CFTC is getting involved and in, and in following up on their uh, their committee on market risk and yeah you have Kerry as sort of the international envoy and you have the climate czar EPA all of the agencies so I, I will tell you I am again it's it's not going to be easy I don't want to be wild eyed and, and irrational about it. But I do think when you look at the climate landscape from 10 or 20 years ago, the politics of it are different. And it goes back to sort of what I mentioned in the first segment. I think there's the economic imperatives are more clear. There's a belief the the, the impact on agribusiness and farm is, is more clear. So I, I think you and you you see more Republicans stepping out. So you have Senators Braun and Stabenow working on things like the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which it, which would help farmers engage in carbon sinks and soil conservation and sell credits into a market. You have Senator Braun and Coons forming a bipartisan climate solutions caucus. And so the, the, the discussion is now much more what to do about climate rather than whether to do something about it. And look, there are what things in the American jobs plan, like more vehicle chargers, more electrification, they're a good base. And then if you move up to something like, like a carbon price, that can really get you there. And there are members of both sides who are looking at those things. So hard, but not impossible. One final question before we have to go. And it's something that's kind of, I think, near and dear to, to both of us as uh, former out to pastor staffers. There was a report <laughs> out this morning that up and down Capitol Hill staffers are feeling burned out following the insurrection, the year of remote work, and just the overall climate of of partisanship uh, and rancor on Capitol Hill. And there's anticipation that you're gonna see a a massive rush for the exits among Capitol Hill staff, not to overinflate the role of staff. No one elected us to anything. On the other hand, I think most members of Congress, most senators worth their salt would say that a lot of the legislative branch of government depends on the 10,000 or so professionals who work at the staff level and really make the engine run. What are you hearing from our former colleagues? Do you share this sense that a lot of this engine is sputtering? Well, I think, look, you start off with the fact that it is a, it is a rewarding and immensely important job and, and gives you a sense of purpose, but it's, it's hard in the best of times. And then you have COVID, you have January 6th. You also have a lot of people who have been working there for a long time. And this year, if Congress keeps doing things, are notching big accomplishments. And people may be looking around saying, I'm a little bit worn out, I'm a little bit tired, and I'm, I'm going to go uh, pull a Costanza, and I'm going to go out on a high note. 
I'm going to notch this big accomplishment, then I'm going to go do something else. But that's that's also part of the circle of life and new people will cycle in. But yes, staff does matter, Matt, 100 percent. Staff does matter. I look, I, I, I know I'm at risk of spraining a shoulder, patting ourselves on the back here, but I a shout out to all the staffers out there working hard and uh, making the engine go. Policy matters. Details matter. Ultimately, it's all about the well-being, welfare, and prosperity of real-life Americans. Just a shout out to the staffers out there who work incredibly hard and are really dedicated to something larger than themselves and are doing a great job. All right, we've kept you long enough. Ryan McConaughey is the Senate insider, Senate insider. It's finger on the pulse of everything going on under the dome and the dynamics going on outside the dome. Thank you so much for walking us through all of the very fascinating stuff that's going on in the U.S. Senate. And we'll have you back to see how you did on all your predictions. (laughs) I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 